And we invite you now to turn to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. And again, this is normal for us at Crossroad Baptist Church. If you're visiting for the first time on a Sunday like this, uh, we do have two sermons, um, one around the Lord's table and one that follows our regular time in the Word. And this is a sermon series through the book of Genesis. It is our 38th message, and there are uh, just a few Sundays left to give this message. Um, This is one of three final messages. So this one plus two more will finish out the book of Genesis. And of course, you know the theme of Genesis has been sin destroys, but God delivers. Sin destroys, but God delivers. And the theme of Genesis, sin destroys, but God delivers, has helped shape our understanding of the trajectory of this incredible book. Now, the last major portion of Genesis is wrapped up around one person, and that is Joseph, the life of Joseph. And so this is a fourth installment of our series on Joseph, sort of a sub-series within the series. And what we've learned has helped us think about our theme for 2024 at Crossroad Baptist Church, which is one hope, one calling in 2024. You see, Joseph is the quintessential reminder to us that when we trust in God's providence and God's sovereignty behind the scenes, it guarantees our hope and our calling. So this message entitled, God's Providence Works All Things for Our Good, being a four-part in this series, let me remind you that God's providence that works all things for our good does not mean that everything in our lives are good. That's just uh, not real. It's not true. There are things in this world that aren't good. It's because we live in a sin-cursed world, and we learn that from Genesis. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we learn that sin destroys and God delivers. And so as we see through the life of Joseph, God has been funneling us to his provision for victory over sin that destroys and deliverance, not just physically, but eternally, through the singular means of his redemption, that is the seed which he promised to Eve and Adam. And that seed would come through the lineage that we've traced through Genesis, and now we're seeing the the type or character that is displayed in Joseph that makes him a type of the quintessential seed, the one to come, whose name is Jesus. And the one who has come, the one to come since Genesis, but the one who has come. And so as we think through this and we look at the text at hand, we are going to see today that the narrative is going to highlight for us, like we've been talking about, God's sovereignty behind the scenes, that the narrative is going to highlight for us as we ask a question, how does the narrative highlight for us that God's sovereign providence requires us to correct our thinking and change our living to take ownership of our calling. You say, now where did you get to that, preacher? Because that's not been the subset of where we've been going in this series. Well, this fourth part in this series shows us a subtle shift in the narrative. In fact, as we've looked at Genesis thus far, since chapter 37, with a little hiccup there to talk about Judah and Tamar, the main person we've talked about is Joseph. But we look at this text... Joseph is indeed a main player, a main character in the, in the story, but the story's focus is actually on Joseph's brothers. And so what we find today, that there are two different responses to God's sovereign providence at work. So as we look at Joseph and his brothers, the story that we're going to read here in a moment, we will see two different responses to God's providence and is behind-the-scenes sovereign working. And we need to determine where are we on that spectrum. And likely we might be in both of those camps somewhere today as we see Joseph's response to God's providence and his sovereign work and his brother's response to God's providence and his sovereign work. And so I invite you, before I continue with this introduction, I invite you to turn your attention to the text this morning. So let's look at Genesis chapter 42. As we ended chapter 41, we have found Joseph has now been 
elevated to a place of extreme power and authority. He is the viceroy over Egypt. He's been commissioned with essentially making an economic plan to ensure that Egypt doesn't just doesn't fall away and die in the midst of an upcoming worldwide famine, but not only does it not die, but it thrives and prospers and becomes the nation that all the world comes to when this famine strikes. And Joseph is the key player in all of this. Joseph, we know, has been a princeling in the land of Canaan. He was blessed by his father Jacob. Uh, sadly, Jacob showed favoritism, and there was a lot of uh, baggage involved in that. But Jacob, uh, who showed favoritism to Joseph, Joseph being the princeling, had been clothed with a coat of many colors, showing his status. He'd been sent on a mission to spy out uh, whether his brothers were obeying his, his father's instructions. His brothers uh, did not like the fact that Joseph had received revelation from God that he indeed would be ruler over them one day, that they would bow to him, and so would his father and mother. And so they conspired in bitterness and anger against their brother. They ripped off his coat of many colors. They beat him and threw him in a pit. They sold him for money as a slave in Egypt. So he went from a, a, a prince to the pit and from the pit to Potiphar's house. And we know in our story thus far that that process, God never left him or forsook him. That the Lord was with Joseph and whatever he did prospered. So in Potiphar's house, he ended up managing the entire household. Whatever he did prospered. Whatever he touched turned to gold. Talk about the Midas touch. Joseph had it. Potiphar, his master, withheld nothing from him except his one and only wife. Unfortunately, as we read the narrative, we found that Potiphar's wife was not satisfied with all the goods of Egypt that this prince and captain of the guard of Pharaoh would provide her. She wanted Joseph as her liaison as well. And she pursued him relentlessly. And day by day by day, Joseph had to stand his ground and say, No, I will not sin against God and do this wickedness in his sight, nor will I sin against my master by taking his wife into my bed. And one day she found an opportunity to convince Joseph uh, he was in the house alone. She grabbed his cloak and, and tried to convince him intensely to sin. And he fled the scene, leaving his outer garment in her hand. And of course, you know the story. Potiphar comes home. He hears his wife's tale, his wife's take on it. And out of rage and anger, he throws Joseph in prison. Joseph spends years in prison where he's given a, a neck collar and a chain. He's chained to his prison cell. But while he's in prison, he rises to power because remember, God was with him. And whatever he did, he prospered. So much so that the captain of the prison, where Pharaoh's prisoners were held regularly, the captain of the prison actually put Joseph in charge of the prison. So as a prisoner himself, uh, bound with a collar and chains, uh, chains on his, on his arms on a regular basis, daily he would be released to do the bidding of the prison, uh, prison captain. And one day, God would send a butler and a baker to also dream dreams, and Joseph told them God would give him the interpretation. He did. And he asked them to remember him while he was in captivity. And unfortunately, what happened was they forgot him. But eventually, Pharaoh had a dream that led to this circumstance. And one of those servants of Pharaoh remembered. And that one servant that remembered went and told Pharaoh. And Pharaoh got Joseph out of prison, and into prominence. So he went from prince to the pit to Potiphar to prison, and now he's in power again. And he exchanged that, that neck collar of chains for a golden chain of the viceroy of Egypt. He exchanged those prison clothes for fine linen that represented none other than Pharaoh himself. He exchanged the groveling and the anger of the prison uh, prisoners and the prisoners against him for people of Egypt bowing at his chariot. That's where we find Joseph. We find him as the viceroy of Egypt, and that's where our story begins. So let's dive in in verse four, chapter 42. When Jacob saw 
that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. We'll say, wait a second, where's Jacob come into play? Well, let's back up just a second. Look at verse, uh, look, look back at verse 53 of verse 41. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. So Joseph had risen to power 13 years since he'd left the land of Canaan as a 17-year-old. He's a 30-year-old man who's been given the power and prestige of viceroy of Egypt. And there's seven years of plenty. And so 20 years later, this famine begins. And the seven years of famine begin to come, verse 54, as Joseph had said, the famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. Who's being affected here? Not just Egyptians, but the entire earth, the whole world. The, the, essential, the ruler of, of Egypt says, go to Joseph. He's the guy. I have given him my power and authority. Whatever he says, do, you do. And so Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. That's the backdrop of Jacob's conversation. Let's move to verse 3 of 42. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in, uh, the, famine was in the land of Canaan as well. So let's pause for a second. There's a little setup here. Benjamin, the younger brother, does not get sent. And there's a, there's a little bit of a hook we think Jacob is probably on to his sons. He sent his one and only favorite son, the favorite son who was to get a double portion, and he never returned. All he got was a bloody garment. And he doesn't want to send Benjamin. There's a lack of trust here. Okay, so let's keep reading. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Huh. Now, was that predicted? It was. Is this a full fulfillment? Not quite. There's a missing brother and a missing mom and dad here as well. Okay? So this isn't full fulfillment. It's just partial fulfillment. Verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. Now, you say, why would they not recognize him? Well, uh, they're Semites. In Semitic culture, they would have been bearded. Uh, they would have been uh, shepherders. So they would have been wearing garments of, you know, the outdoorsmen. Think of Esau, right? These are, these are what they would have been. But Joseph would have been clean-shaven. He would have been a viceroy of Egypt. He's wearing fine garments. He's replaced his prison collar for a golden chain. Uh, th this man has all the authority of Egypt, and he's no doubt decked out like an Egyptian, probably face-painted and everything. So, it says, Joseph saw his brothers... But he acted as a stranger to them, and he spoke roughly to them. I'm going to explain this in a moment. I don't want you to get lost in the story, so let's just listen to the story here. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, did they consider Joseph to be a spy at one point in time? They did. Little turn of events here. Keep going. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And he remembered the dream. So let's keep verse 10. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the son of one, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. Notice the honesty here, clarity and honesty. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. 
In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all together in prison three days. Now, then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. I want you to mark that. This is the first time God gets mentioned. And who is mentioning God? Joseph. All right? That's really, really important. What has happened previously? Who mentions God to Pharaoh? Joseph. Who mentions God to the butler and the baker? Joseph. Who mentions God in Potiphar's house? Joseph. Who mentions God to his brothers? Joseph. Joseph brings God into the equation. Keep going. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. Notice the switch. He said, I'll send one of your, you to your father's house. The rest of you stay in prison. Now he's developed a little bit of compassion. He said, I'm going to send all of you back, but I'm keeping one of you. See the flip? And you bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are guilty, truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. When did he anguish in soul in front of them? When they stripped him, beat him, and threw him in a pit. This fills in the information, doesn't it? And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to uh, give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was, in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? This is the first time they bring God into it. Then they went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we're honest men. We're not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies and that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you that you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. Let's stop for a second who this is talking. Simeon was one of the two that slaughtered an entire city of men out of rage. And he he's, uh, now has a bit of a change of heart, but he's still just as reprobate here in his thinking. Kill my sons. Not, not at all what he should be saying. Verse 38. But he said, my son shall not go with you. This is Jacob speaking. For his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I'm going to stop our reading there. Next week, we'll put, pick up with a larger portion. I'm going to ask you this week to read chapters 43 to 47. We won't cover all of those chapters next week, but I won't have time to read three and a half chapters next week because it's a big story. So go ahead and read them ahead this week so I can hit highlights. So as we, as we look at this fourth installment of Joseph's story, 
that thematically teaches us of God's sovereign providence. Thus far, we have seen a subtle shift in the emphasis of the text to, to drive home the point that as believers, we must cling to hope in our sovereign God's providential plan for our lives, and we must claim our calling. Joseph clung to the hope of the promise that he would be blessed, that he would be, uh, he would be a savior for his family. And he was able to endure the trials and the trauma of that. But today, the shift moves slightly further. In fact, the main character of the narrative, who's been Joseph to this point, God's sovereignly uh, providential working in his life, has used him to shape his understanding of God despite the dire circumstances that we have just outlined for you. When we left off last time, we saw Joseph's rise to fame after 13 years of despair and difficulty. We're 20 plus years now into his abuse by his brothers. And they walk back into his life and it becomes a fresh wound all over again. The window uh, view that we have reveals that Joseph's faith in God's sovereign providence was truly monumental. In fact, we learn that God's expectation for us is to emulate Joseph. We should emulate, as one commentator reminded us, that Joseph's belief in God and his greatness. Uh, More than any other man, Joseph believed in God's word as no other man had to that point. Joseph believed that God was with him more than any other contemporaries. It's a template for everyone in every age. Joseph's trust in God, display of God's grace and his lifestyle did not change with his fall from riches to rags to once again rise from rags to riches. He patiently endured suffering even to bloodshed so that he would be an ambassador of God's hope and grace for all to see. We noted this last time with this narrative highlighting how, we, how he named his boys, how he diligently carried out his affairs to honor God and to save humanity from certain famine and imminent death. So, as we think of this, today's narrative in similar fashion, Joseph is a type of Jesus. You see, Jesus left riches to take on rags, humanity, only to rise to riches again, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, who Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus went from riches to rags, back to riches. All this he did to save the world from imminent eternal death and separation from God. Jesus is the true seed promised to Adam and Eve to crush the serpent's head. He can and will do so for you if you will trust in him. Yet today's narrative shifts the focus onto Joseph's brothers as well as our hero, Joseph. In today's narrative, we'll see that there are two different responses to God's sovereign providence at work. Joseph's response and his brother's response. Therefore, we will see through these two perspectives, first and foremost, that God's sovereign providence works to teach humility. God's sovereign providence works to teach us humility. Next, we will see that God's sovereign providence works to correct our thinking. So those are our two points, and we're going to rapidly get through them today. And as we do so, we're going to see this truth. This is the summary truth that we walk away with today. God wants us to respond to his sovereign providence with hope in him and pursuit of our calling. Through the life of Joseph, through these two perspectives today, we're going to see how God's sovereign providence is intended to shape our calling and our hope. So let's look, first of all, God's sovereign providence works to teach humility. Now we're going to focus primarily on Joseph and his interaction with his brothers here, and we're going to be thinking mostly about Joseph in this context, but we're going to see God's demand of humility when it comes to the brothers' responses. So God's sovereign providence works to teach humility. First of all, we'll see humility that tests others' faith. Joseph's reaction to seeing his brothers for the first time in more than 20 plus years, was one of humility and restraint, was it not? 
I mean, as the viceroy of Egypt, he's just been paraded around previously in our previous text, around all of Egypt in the limousine of his day, and every single person that that limousine passes bows their knees to the ground in front of him in homage to Joseph. Joseph has the power with a lift of a scepter to behead or destroy anybody who gets in his way. Joseph could immediately have flicked his wrist and wiped out all of his brothers, but instead he showcases humility that tests their faith. And oftentimes as believers in Christ, God providentially places us in a, in a place of discomfort around people who perhaps have hurt us in the past. Maybe it's a hostile workplace. Maybe it's a rough family, extended family life. Maybe it's an environment uh, that we find ourselves in that's uncomfortable daily. And God providentially places us there, and He expects us to humbly point others to Him. You see, we are ambassadors who in God, through Christ, are pointing others to Him. You, you know what our theme at Crossroad is, has been, our mission, our purpose, uh, our statement, our, our statement of faith declares to us what is, what is uh, the mission or the purpose of the church. Well, who is the church? We are. What is our mission? To glorify God. And then how do we accomplish it? By being disciples, making disciples. You see, God wants us to bring Him glory by being disciples who make disciples. And sometimes He providentially puts us in uncomfortable circumstances. And he wants our response to be a response of humility. And that humility often tests the faith of others. Here, Joseph's humility and restraint is a test for his brothers. God has indeed taught him patience and trust during his tenure in Egypt. He's been his, it's, God has been his constant comforter and companion. His humility gave rise to great position and status in Egypt as his viceroy and representative on earth. But instead of using his position to destroy his brothers, he's used it to teach them the very lessons he learned himself. And so, as we think about God, what God wants us to do, he wants us to respond to his sovereign providence with hope in him and pursuit of our calling. Peter would put it this way, God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Man, woman, child, teen, God hasn't kept you here on earth to have a chip on your shoulder. He hasn't kept you here on earth as a believer to walk around uh, declaring that your position and your principles and your righteousness is better than a lost and dying world. Remember what I've been telling you through the story of Joseph? Comparative righteousness is an illusion. Because there are none righteous, not even one. And when we walk around comparing ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. Rather, we're foolish. God has placed you in your family and in your home and in your neighborhood with your next door neighbors and in your environment. And he expects your humility to be a test of the faith of others. But are you willing to be? Are you willing to be that one? to humble yourself and knock on the door and invite that neighbor to dinner, to coffee? Are you willing to share your hope and your calling with that hostile employer? Are you willing to let your humility be a test of the faith of others? Jesus did not think it something easily grasped onto to, to stay in the riches of glory, but he humbled himself and he took on flesh and in obedience he suffered in our place. The least we can do in a place of, of position. Remember what we said in, in Ephesians chapter 2? We have been placed in the heavenly places with the riches of Christ. That is our eternal destiny. So with that in mind, we cannot afford to walk around as if we're God's gift to planet Earth. We must walk around knowing that, but by the grace of God, so would I be in despair. So would I be pursuing the rat race of life. So I would be trying to fill my time with the void of nothingness and the pleasures of this world that do not satisfy Will your humility, brother or sister, like Joseph's, 
and your position of, of authority and power, eternal security in heaven, will that position so humble you in the mercy and the grace of God that you'll be willing to share your one hope and your one calling with your friends, your neighbor, your family, your co-worker. But you say, preacher, you have no idea how awful they've been to me. You're right. I don't. But Jesus does. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was smitten, stricken of God. He was crushed for your sin and mine, for your iniquities. And yet... He willfully did so in humility so that he could save your soul eternally. And friend, he has put you right here so that your humility, like Joseph's, will be a test of the faith of others. Humility also must be a humility that honors God. And so as we see... Uh, God's sovereign providence working to teach humility. It teaches us humility that tests others' faith, but it teaches humility that honors God. Remember what I told you to note? Who brings God into the equation? Who? Joseph. Joseph is the one. And how does he do it? He says, I fear Elohim. Joseph did not think that his justice would be equal to divine justice. Though he had all authority and all position and the right to declare them to be Egypt's prisoners forever and even to sentence them to death, he did not think that his justice system was equal to God's. And in humility, he honored God. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And maybe you're sitting here today and you really have been a victim of true horror. Maybe you've been in an abusive relationship, emotionally or physically. Maybe you have, uh, you have suffered wrong and injustice in the workplace and been terminated wrongfully because of your stand for, for God and faith. And maybe God is going to elevate you in humility to a place where you can do something about that. But remember, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. You see, one day all men everywhere will stand before the one Jesus who will judge the living and the dead at his glorious appearing. Amen. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, we will stand before that judgment so that our motives can be judged for reward's sake. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For those who don't know Christ as Savior that have rejected God's one and only means of eternal life, they will stand before God and they will be judged for their works also for reward's sake, but their reward will be eternal separation in a very real place of suffering and punishment, a place that you and I deserve to be. But by the grace of God and the mercy of God, we are not. You see, friends, we must remember to honor God. Joseph was a man who feared God, who put God in his proper place. And by fear of God, it's not the kind of fear that we see of his brothers. The fear and the paranoia of God with a divine hammer ready to sledge down. But the, the fear of, uh, of, of reverence and awe to know that God is the ultimate judge. God deals out the ultimate justice. God knows what's best for me and for others. Do you have a humility that honors God? Because God wants us to respond to his sovereign providence with hope in him and pursuit of our calling. The third sub-point here is God wants our humility that conveys his compassion. What does Joseph do? He's speaking through a translator. Does he understand every word they're saying? Oh, you bet. Not only does he understand what they're saying, but he understands what he's doing. His humility and his proper reverence for God has put him in a place where he could enact revenge, but he does not. Now, he does test them. He does put them in prison. He accuses them of being spies. They accused him of being spies. They imprisoned him, him into a pit. He's at the place where uh, they need to pay him money, and uh, they, they sell their... He wants to test to see if they'll sell their brother for food. And what do they do? No, they leave Simeon. They let him get chained right in front of them. This is the ultimate test. Will they sell brother number two for food and freedom like they sold brother number one? 
You see, he's testing their humility. But what does he do? He actually conveys the compassion of God. He turns away from them. He goes in his private chamber and he weeps because he knows what it's like to be at the bottom of the pit crying for your life. He knows what it's like to be wrongfully accused of doing something he did not do and to be forgotten in a prison with a collar around his neck. He knows what it's like to be sold for 20 pieces of silver, like chattel, worthless. He knows what it feels like to be helpless and hopeless. Friend, do you know what it feels like? Have you hit bottom before? There are people in your life that need the hope of Jesus Christ, that God has put next to you, and only you can reach them because he's intended that. Will you have the compassion of God? Will you look on your brother and sister, and instead of thinking of all the wrongs that they've done to you, will you look at them with compassion, knowing that yet lest they come to faith in Christ, they will be separated from God like you deserve? Will you convey the mercy of God to them like God conveyed to you? Listen to Paul's admonition to the Ephesian brothers in chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Friend, sometimes we offer forgiveness not because the person deserves it, not even because they earned it, but because God has forgiven me because God forgave a wretch like me I can offer forgiveness to the wretch across from me friends humility is God's sovereign providence working in our lives he wants to teach us humility in his quintessential type archetype in the Old Testament of Jesus the one to come Joseph the type of Jesus here showcased incredible humility that tests others faith incredible humility that honored God and incredible humility that conveyed God's compassion sometimes when we've been wounded by others we get bitter and we desire to treat them with contempt disdain and cruelty we want justice Yet here we see Joseph's response to be very different. He humbly reflects God's compassion and he lets God's justice take full effect. You see, God wants us to respond to his sovereign providence with hope in him and pursuit of our calling. Will you be a humble ambassador for Jesus like Joseph? Well, that's not the only uh, response we see in the text. We see God's sovereign providence working to correct thinking. Now, I said our thinking because ultimately the application is for us today. But we find Joseph's humility pointing out the need for correct thinking in his brothers. And the text and the story does the very same thing. In fact, what we find here is the parallels. The parallels of Joseph's suffering in the story are purposeful. Joseph was stripped of power and prestige, nearly killed and imprisoned. His brothers are put in the very same circumstance to test their response and understanding of God's sovereign providence. Because God wants us to respond to his sovereign providence with hope in him in pursuit of our calling. So we see God's sovereign providence works to correct our thinking when we're thinking wrongly about God. So what, what, how does this situation correct thinking? Well, we find that correcting our thinking requires confronting our choices. Correcting our thinking requires confronting our choices. Joseph's brothers came to realize that their dilemma was self-made. Do you see their conversation? The first opportunity they have to turn to one another and converse, what do they say? Go back to the text and take a look. And he, he, They have a, a pretty candid conversation. He says they're spies, and they turn, in verse 21, they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They're confronting their choices. They're taking an honest survey of who they really are and the choices that they've really made. Reuben steps up and he says, hey, look, didn't I tell you? Didn't I warn you? And if we went back to the story, you'd remember that Reuben says, look, don't, don't do him any harm. Just let him sit there for a bit. It was Judah that came up with the idea to sell him into slavery. Reuben didn't even know. And it, it, when he came back, he was the one who tore his clothes and, you know, was upset. 
And so we find here they were confronting their choices. You see, before we come to Christ, we must take responsibility for our sin. After we come to Christ, we must do the same. If we don't have correct thinking about our sin and our circumstances, we won't take correct action in our walk with God in relationship to others. Now, last week, the evangelist preached mostly to, to saved believers. And he shared a lot of application for us today. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but confronting or correcting our thinking requires us to correct our choices. Confront our choices, I should say. I wonder what choices have you made that need some correcting today? You can't change the past. We don't live in the past. We live in the present. And what we do when we yield the past to God and we give our past decisions to God and we reckon with God about those choices, confessing and confronting those, and we turn to God for His grace and mercy, we can in the present note that God has redeemed our past and He has secured our future so that in the present I can serve Him without regret. See, when we repent and confront our choices rightly, we recognize that God has redeemed our past and He has secured our future so that we can live in the present to God's glory. And so, not only do we need correct thinking that requires confronting our choices, but there was corrected thinking that required godly guilt. Now notice uh, in, the, in the text, they truly had guilt. In verse 28, it says, what is this that God has done to us? They realized they had time to reflect on their circumstances. Now, I think this guilt is godly guilt and not just uh, an excuse. And that's, I think, because what we find is they actually take action to correct the problem. They actually do bring their brother. They do show up. I know, spoiler alert, right? That's next week. We're going to finish part of the story. But what they find is when confronting their past and dealing with real guilt, that guilt turns them to the right source, turns them to God who can correct and restore them. Now, there is a difference between ungodly guilt, that's self-absorbed, self-motivated, woe is me, and godly guilt that turns us to the source that can secure our future and help us serve in the present. And I realize that According to Romans chapter 1, we have all been made in God's image, and by creation we can see clearly the triune nature of our God. And with a conscience we all have stamped on our hearts, there is a law of God. We all intrinsically know that it's wrong to murder somebody, right? I, ho I hope so. I hope no murderers in this room. I mean, because you all kind of looked at me like, we do? Please tell me you know it's wrong to murder somebody. Okay, thank you. Um, we all know that it's wrong to steal somebody else's possessions, right? We, we all know that lying to get our own way is not good, not a good thing. We all know that coveting somebody else's stuff only leads to, to bitterness and despair and only hurts us in the long run, right? Why do we know that? Because God has stamped on us a, an eternal conscience, Every single society across the globe knows moral truth and absolute truth because God has stamped it on them. So there's a difference between godly guilt, recognizing that my past was an affront and a sin against God, and I need to go to God the source who can redeem my past, secure my future, and restore me to usefulness in the present. That's godly guilt. Ungodly guilt actually begins to blame God and blame others and, and goes down the spiraling vortex of self-pity and begins to denigrate self-worth and begins to think thoughts of self-harm. Because when I am more valuable to me than anybody else and anything else, then, then I, I become the, the, the demigod of my own universe. Are you following me? And self-pity sucks me down the vortex and that is, is, an, is an end that will, there's no bottom to that. For those of you who have just struggled with despair and depression, you understand. There, there can be no bottom to that. It will just continue to plunge and plummet. 
And how do we understand what godly guilt is when we recognize that that conscience that has been seared is to point us to a creator that loved us and made a way to satisfy the penalty of my sin and to turn me from my sin to my Savior. And I begin to think the right things about God. God is good and he gets to define what is good. And God has my best interest at heart. That's what we've been learning in this series. God's sovereignential providence works all things for my good. Even the bad circumstances with bad people who mean to do me harm, God can work that out for his glory and my good. And when I know that truly God is good and God has made me in his image and that God truly cares about me, so much so that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for my sins, then whatever circumstances that have caused me to despair and to doubt uh, can begin to disappear when I stop fixating on the horizon of my problem and I start to focus my thoughts, my attention, and my prayers on Jesus, whoever lives, to make intercession for me. That's what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 1. Wherefore, seeing we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those men and women of faith who are a motley crew of broken, messed up people with bad choices and made really, really bad choices. Go back and look at Hebrews chapter 11. They're not a single, you know, righteous person there. I mean, Enoch, he's like the only one, and we don't even know anything about Enoch. He walked with God and he was not. Everybody else, Abraham, hey, um, hey, honey, Sarai speaking, um, you know, we don't have this baby, you know, would you like to take Hagar, my handmaiden? You better say no, buddy, because I'm the one and only one for you. Oh, yeah, honey, that's a great idea. I'll commit adultery and have a baby with your handmaiden. That's a great idea. What? What, what was he thinking? So when we, comparative righteousness is an illusion. So we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. They're all sinners saved by grace. Since we're surrounded by them, let us lay aside every weight, all the hindrances of life, the good things that become bad things when they trip us up in the race of life. And let us, uh, let us lay aside every sin which stands in our way, which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. He began our faith and he will complete our faith. The author and finisher of our faith who endured the cross. He endured the cross and he despised the shame, but he put up with a cruel death for us. And he is seated. He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is positioned to help you right now. And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for you. Don't buy into the dark lie of the enemy that is in your heart and without that whispers and says you have no value. Your life isn't worth anything. You should believe the lie that those people are telling you. You should listen to the untruths about you and about your past and about your problems. Don't buy into that lie. Friends, you have great value in God's eyes. You have so much value that God sent his one and only son to die in your place. And he has a plan for your life because he is good. He gets to define good and he has a good plan for you. So godly guilt turns us not inwardly and not horizontally, but vertically to the one and only savior of the world and sovereign of the universe. Look unto Jesus. He began our faith and he'll finish it. He endured the sin that you deserved on the cross for you, and he is now positioned at the right hand of the throne of God, seated there in the heavenlies for you. He told his disciples in John, John chapter 10, he said, I'm going away, but I will come again. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. You see, Jesus is ready to receive you unto himself. And no matter what trials you're going through now, no matter what trouble or struggles or hurt, whether it's self-inflicted or it's externally inflicted, God cares about you. And if there's guilt in your life and it's genuine because of bad choices, just stop looking horizontally, stop plunging down into self-pity and start looking to the Savior who can forgive and redeem your past. 
and secure your future so that in the present you can serve him faithfully. Well, the final thing here is correcting our thinking motivates right action. You see, when we, like Joseph and his brothers, begin to think correctly about God and understand that he has a good plan for our lives, understand that he will make things right, understand that he is a just and righteous God, then it begins to motivate our actions. The brothers' response to the turn of events, Simeon's imprisonment, and the return of their money, all of this shows that their guilt was godly, and their response was motivating to proper action. They go home, they tell dad the truth. Now, they leave out a few details. They didn't say, hey, dad, we were, by the way, we were in prison for three days. <laughs> um, by the way, they he chained up Simeon, like, right in front of us, and it's kind of terrifying. Um, uh, by the way, dad, you know, if we don't show up with our brother, Simeon's probably going to be, you know, it's going to be no bueno, right? Esta muerte, right? No, no good, right? It's not a good thing. That's not what they did. They told the story, but they told the truth. And they understood that what they needed to do was do right. They needed to do right. Uh, an old-timey evangelist used to say, do right. Do right till the stars fall. It's never right to do wrong to get a chance to do right. Always do right. And these men confronted their past choices. They dealt with godly guilt and, and went to the God who redeemed their past, secured their future, and set them for present success, and it motivated them for right actions. The brothers' response to this turn of events was, was proper and godly. So the two viewpoints today in conclusion remind us that God wants us to respond to his sovereign providence with hope in him and pursuit of our calling. God wants you to be a humble teacher of truth. God wants you to respond to life's difficulties with correct thinking. God wants you to live in such a way that promotes positive action for Jesus. May God help us to be men and women who think humbly, uh, react biblically, and serve God faithfully. He's got a special plan for your life, friend. He's put people in your life that only he intends you to reach. And he wants you to claim that one hope in Jesus and that one calling today. Father, in Jesus' name.